I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with esteemed authors and public figures. Today, I'm interviewing S.C. Gwynn, Pulitzer finalist for his classic book, Empire of the Summer Moon, and we were talking about his new book, His Majesty's Airship, The Life and Tragic Death of the World's Largest Flying Machine. The book came out on May 2nd, 2023, and we did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas on July the 20th, 2023. Enjoy. Welcome. Glad you're here this morning. Glad a few people are still fighting the Dallas heat. Not in Colorado or Montana or cooler places like that. So anyway, it's our great privilege to have with us today my friend S.C. Gwynn, who goes by the name Sam. Uh, and uh, many of you uh, know of Sam and have read his books before. Interestingly, his most famous book, Empire of the Summer Moon, uh, we were at a dinner last night where one of the leading business, Dallas business leaders said he always keeps... 30 copies of Empire of the Summer Moon in his office to give away to his friends, and he's now given out over 600 of them. I think I owe him commission. Yeah. And uh, Empire of the Summer Moon was a finalist for the Pulitzer. Uh, sold two and a half million copies. And Sam, tell us the exciting news about Empire of the Summer Moon that's just happened in the last few weeks. So it's, uh, the, the, the book is in some ways a logical movie. I mean, it's, you know, it's cowboys and Indians and stuff, and, you know, why not? Um, and, and for a long time, since 2010, mostly Warner Brothers has had this in development, which is a, sort of in hell. I mean, it's a de- development. <laughs> Hollywood has two modes, hair on fire or glacier. And uh, <laughs> anyway, they never could quite get it done. But so it, it's now been acquired by this guy, Taylor Sheridan, who you may know from Yellowstone, or 1883 or 1923. It doesn't get any bigger than who is, that. Who is the big dog in Hollywood now. And, and this is, he intends, I spoke with him on the phone, he intends to do four, two, uh, sorry, uh, Four two-hour episodes, model as Lonesome Dove, that's what that was too, single season. Uh, filmed on the four sixes, which he owns, and y'all didn't know that, which he bought for $300 million. He is the single largest purveyor of horses to Hollywood, so the horses are coming from the four sixes too. So if, if it happens, I mean, with Hollywood, you can never be sure until, it, until the cameras roll, but yeah, so what I tell... And he said he's going to spend three hundred million on it. So I tell my friends I just signed a nine-figure deal with Taylor Sheridan. So. <laughs> <laughs> so we hope it gets me. And before he started writing wonderful best-selling books, uh, Sam was uh, a top writer at first Time Magazine and then uh, Texas Monthly, where he wrote literally dozens of cover stories. Uh, and, and so he's been in Texas now for many years. He lives in Austin. And please welcome S.C. Sam Gwynn. Thank you. Now, Sam, your new book, His Majesty's Airship, is about something that happened almost a century ago. And it involved uh, the British people uh, involved in aviation. So what was it about 
this story from so long ago from another country that made you decide, this is book worthy. This will work with an American audience. Yeah, so this, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's 20th century history, which I haven't done that much of. I mean, I'm more known for 19th century history. But it, to me, what it was was a, it's, it's a story of an airship crash in 1937 years before the Hindenburg. Um, and it's a, it's a, actually, people know the Hindenburg. People never heard of this. Actually, this is a much better story. The Hindenburg isn't that great a story. There's really only the question of what made it go boom. This, this thing has all sorts of drama attached to it, to, its, um, to how it was made and, and how it was done. But, it would, but uh, it, what, what also appealed to me really about it was that the book is also a book kind of about the British Empire. Uh, this was to be a ship of empire. It was part of a scheme to populate the world with British airships and British technology. And it was, it, and in retrospect, you can see it as an emblem of the decline of the British Empire. It's kind of wrapped up in, in, in British failure rather than British success. So you had this kind of great tale of the airship crash and the global ambitions and the failure um, mixed with this kind of linking to the history of, the, of a, a declining empire in, in the 20th century. So I love, I love the kind of the big picture, small picture side of it. Mm -hmm. Now, the main character is somebody who I'm sure no one in this room has ever heard of, Lord Christopher Thompson, who had a, quite a title. He was the British Empire's Secretary of State for Air. Great title. So, so why, why is uh, Lord Thompson uh, the central character in this story? <laughs> so Secretary of State for Air, I love it. It's, it's got a Shakespearean ring to it or something, you know. Uh, but... So Lord Thompson, so here, here's what this book is. This book is about something called the Imperial Airship Scheme, which was hatched by <clears throat> Christopher Birdwood Thompson. Um, Thompson was a man of, of, the, of the empire. He was of five generations of the Raj in India, enormously influential military figures in his family. Um, he himself served in all of the great theaters of British Empire, served with Kitchener, served with all the the big generals, and, and so Thompson comes out in the 1920s, <clears throat> he, this, this idea <clears throat> that he drove along was called the Imperial Airship Scheme, which was literally to um, link the far-flung pieces of the British Empire together um, by means of the air. And the thing that we're gonna do, we're, we're airships. Uh, and if you look at, if you look at the, that his moment in history, when we come out of World War I, Great Britain has the largest empire ever known in human history. It's a quarter of the world is now Great Britain's. And because they picked up a lot of things after that war, they picked up the old Turkish holdings in the Middle East and German holdings in Asia. And, and uh, suddenly they had this massive empire that you know, stretches from Sydney to Toronto to South Africa to Egypt <clears throat> to Singapore to Hong Kong. These are all British. And so, um, and at the same time, the empire was was wobbly, right? It was, it was starting to crack, and it's going to fail entirely pretty soon, but it's starting to crack. So we see the, the Boer War in the early 20th century, the Irish Rebellion, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, re Rebellion in Iraq, the, the, the troubles in India. India was just seething. There are all these troubles are happening, except... So there's this idea that Great Britain, one with this gigantic empire, it's a little wobbly. What they're going to do is they're going to just come up with this great technological solution to the size of their empire. And they're going to reduce the, 
the distance and the time it takes to get places. So in the time-space continuum of the empire, suddenly a, uh, a trip from Sydney to London, which took a month, would only take 11 days. A trip from uh, Karachi, which was then in India, to London, which took 11 days, would be done in four days. You were to have less than half the time, which could be done by these airships. Airplanes were very difficult on long hauls. They had to refuel all the time. You know, to get to India was 26 stops in an airplane. One of these was one stop. They could sort of hover above the earth, which they did. They, they floated instead of a, a flu. And, and the, the idea, Christopher Thompson's idea, was to um, not only to link the far-flung pieces of the empire, but to do it with British technology. Because if you look at the British empire, it was built on technology, right? I mean, the, the pounding piston, the ships bigger than anybody else could make, you know, locomotives, uh, guns bigger than anybody else could make. There's a British technological advantage that gave them their empire. They, they didn't see a reassertion of empire in, in military terms, but they saw they could link the empire together, but do it with this British technology. Now, part of what makes a great story, obviously, uh, and high readability is there's a, a love relationship involved. So, so how is Lord Thompson's love life uh, interwoven into this story? Okay, so, so like a lot of other stories, it comes down to like a guy trying to impress a girl. Um, <laughs> in this case, she's, she's, a fairy, she's like a fairy tale princess out of Romania. Her name's Martha Bibesco, and she's quite something. I mean, she's, uh, she, was, uh, she owned two palaces, immensely wealthy. She also happened to be a, a, a good writer, was the toast of literary Paris in 1908. Marcel Proust used to write poems to her, and André Gide, all these great literary people in Paris, looked up to her. Anyway, this, our, our hero, Lord Thompson, falls in love with her. And, and she and also you, happens to be married. And oh, she's married, yes. And it was, she's, Yeah, she's married to the prince. She's a princess, and she's married to the prince. And she, she's also conducting affairs with various influential people around Europe. But Thompson falls in love with her, and to some extent you can see his career as an attempt to impress this woman. Um, she doesn't really have time for him much at first, but as time goes by, she does. But something interesting happens. So when in the year 1930, year that, that Thompson tries to fly, and he go, he's, flies this ship to, from London to Karachi to prove to the world that this, his airship scheme is going to work. Um, that year, there was something else happening. The, uh, the Viceroy ship of India was, was open, and he was going to become Viceroy of India. Um, no one knew this. It was a deal between him and the prime minister. But, you know, of course, the Viceroy of India ruled over 300 million people, uh, lived in a 240,000-square-foot palace that was the largest residence of any head of state in the world. And this was so that with R101, not only, not only is this going to impress Martha, becoming Viceroy of India, but he, he is going to literally cut the distance between him and her by less than half. Uh, and, and so in a way, this fate, fateful voyage um, of him trying to prove that he can do this is in a lot of ways trying to prove uh, his worth to his girlfriend. His married girlfriend. Married well, girlfriend. Let's talk about the details of the airship. How big was it? 777 feet. You're looking at it. 5.5 million cubic feet. So, so what this is, what makes an airship, this is a rigid airship. A rigid airship 
is this is a steel structure. And so these are ribs. You can see the longitudinal girders going this way and transverse frames going this way. And why do they do this? Because they, if, the only way you can put enough hydrogen inside this thing to lift anything significant is by building a steel structure. Uh, the, the difference between, so uh, the Goodyear blimp, for example, is, is a blimp, uh, not, an airship, not a rigid airship. It has maybe a rigid keel, but it's just a balloon filled with air. Um, anyway, this thing, uh, it holds all this hydrogen. And if you go in, in, in what this, to understand it actually, in some ways you have to go back to the 19th century and look in the, balloons were invented in the 17th century um, uh, and, and developed somewhat in the 18th century. And at some point, the French figured out that you could put a, you know, a, a, a rudder on it and a propeller on it and you could direct it. And it was sort of a directable balloon. In fact, the word, the verb, the French verb to direct is diriger, which means to direct or steer. And so a, something that was dirigeable was a dirigible, right? That was what it meant. But the problem with balloons um, is that they could only lift as much hydrogen as you could, you, you could put into one. And once you got to a certain size, the balloon collapsed upon itself. And so this guy, Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin, um, in the year 1900, uh, invented this concept. Uh, his, his Zeppelins, as they came to be known, uh, were much more primitive looking than this, but they were the same principle. You know, had a steel, hard metal frame inside it, hydrogen uh, gas bags that, that gave the, the ship its lift. And so R101 really is just a really fancy Zeppelin, kind of the heir of, the, uh, of those early works by, by the Count. But it was actually bigger... It was actually bigger than the Titanic. Uh, by volume. By volume. But also talk about what was inside of it. How many people, what were their conditions? Obviously traveling several days, there had to be sleeping compartments, dining rooms, etc. Describe the inside of it. Okay, so when you look at it, you don't see much. And in fact, this is the first airship that ever put most of everything inside. You know, most of them, most of them were slung down below the... Um, well, in the way that I guess the Goodyear blimp is, right? The, the gondola is slung below the airship. So inside here, you have uh, uh, sleeping quarters for 50 or 60 or 70 people. Uh, you have a formal dining room. You have a formal lounge. You have a promenade. You can't quite see the window here, but there's a kind of a sullen window there that you can look out of. There's a smoking lounge. Very interesting, and a, but in a ship with 5.5 million cubic feet of hydrogen, um, just above you, uh, and uh, and and uh, and all this stuff is pretty much inside there. And inside is this fantastic tangle of girders and tubing and and pumps to move ballast around because these were hard to fly. They re they relied really on two things, you know, hydrogen to make it go up and some form of ballast to to allow it to, to come down. Um, anyway, they were tremendously sophisticated technologically. What you're looking at there is a 650-horse diesel engine hauled up for the first time a diesel ever went into the air. You know, there were five of these things that, that propelled it along. It went along at about 65, 70 miles an hour. And, and this advantage, and the reason it could get to India so quickly was not because it was so dazzlingly fast, but because it didn't stop. It just kept going, you know, for 24 hours and, and, and needed only occasional stops about every 3,000 miles for, uh, 
or yeah, 3,000 miles for fuel. So these Zeppelin airships had been uh, manufactured uh, by Germany during World War One and were used for military purposes. Was there a military purpose associated with the English airship? Uh, yes. Um, the, the English desperately wanted to be like the Germans in, in World War I. They wanted to build um, airships that would be able to be either scouts or actually active bombers. So to understand what the British wanted to do, you have to understand what the Germans did. When Count von Zeppelin invented these things, he, so the question is, why do you need that much lift? Why would you build a 450-foot long airship with all that hydrogen? And what was the point of that? Was it to be a cargo carrier, a, a passenger uh, airship service? No, he never envisioned any of those things. He had one and only one idea for the Zeppelin as a weapon. It was to terrorize Europe and kill innocent people, basically. That's what he wanted it to do. And he was very much in line with the Marshall... Um, climate in, of, in Germany of his day, but so he built these things uh, as weapons, and then at the beginning of World War II, 1914, 1915, he unleashed them. The German government unleashed fleets of Zeppelins against seven European cities. Uh, people forget this. Uh, they, we all remember the bombing in World War II, but the Zeppelins were the first long-range bombers in history. They were the first... Um, uh, weapons of mass terror in history. Um, they were the first time in history that humanity understood that it could be annihilated um, uh, from above by something other than a thunderbolt. Um, and these things came in waves. Well, they, they, they were, again, they, Bucharest was bombed, Paris was bombed, other places were bombed in, in, in Europe, but most of it came against England. So fleets of these things would be launched across the English Channel at England to bomb England. And uh, it, it was actually a miserable failure, but they, but they t managed to terrorize, really terrorize, coming over London with bombs going off from the sky. They called them baby killers. Uh, anyway, the British very much wanted to do that. They failed. They, they could never match the German technologies. Um, and this, we now have, what, uh, 12 years after the war, comes the R101, which is the heir of a lot of all of that technology, really, that the Germans developed for wartime purposes. Now, as of the R-101, uh, which uh, took its fateful uh, voyage to India in October 1930, but between World War I and October 1930, what was the safety track record for uh, airships? The safety track record of airships was terrible. And it was always terrible. And it is a sort of monument to human persistence slash, well, I don't know what other word, stupidity, uh, that you, you, you keep going with an idea that has been proven over and over again that doesn't work. There's not only, we all know the, we all know the, what an airship looks like going, uh, going up in a hydrogen fireball because we've all seen the Hindenburg, okay? There were 75 of those in World, in World War I, okay, 70, that, that looked just like that. No one knows about fireballs. Those, those hydrogen fireballs. Those were German airships being shot down by British fighters firing incendiary bullets and, and all manner of other ways they were going down. But the track record, even in the early years, was terrible. These things were, were enormously vulnerable to wind. If they were near the ground and a big wind came up, they'd be beaten to pieces. 
Any spark would set them off. They were very difficult to navigate. They, they were abnormally kind of responsive to, to changes in heat and air density and humidity, and they would rock it up and rock it down. And these problems persisted. So going into the 20s, your question, Talmud, which is the immediate decade before R101 takes off, um, you have a, a series, another series of crashes. Um, hydrogen fireballs, a big one, the British R-38 in 1921. They were going to kind of beat the Germans and figure out how to sort of imitate them but go them one better. They launched this airship. It went down sort of gruesomely in a hydrogen fireball. Um, there was uh, American ships that went down, even though they had helium in them, because as it turns out, hydrogen was only one problem of these things. Uh, one of the, there are six acres here of surface on this craft. Um, and, and I don't know, if, if any of you have ever been in a small sailboat, like a sunfish or something, you realize what happens when a big wind hits the sail? Okay, imagine a wind hitting six acres and what it does. Imagine a 50-mile-an-hour wind hitting, hitting six acres. So these were very, very difficult to fly. So crash after crash after crash... And there was really only one successful airship that ever flew, really, over the years. It was called the Graf Zeppelin. The Germans built it and staffed it with their best people. But one of my, my story is a story of uh, certainly of an airship crash and of a great empire scheme that failed, but it's also a story of human folly on a, on a, on a grand scale. Well, in 1924, even after this horrible 1921 crash of the British uh, airship, they decided to build not one but two airships. Uh, so explain what they were trying to do with two, what, what systems supported them, uh, whether they uh, collaborated with each other, just the story of, of the two efforts that led right. to uh, the ultimate end. The, uh, so what happens in 1924, Britain launches, Christopher Thompson launches the great imperial airship scheme. And... Uh, and the way it's going to go is he's going to come up with these two prototypes, and he's going to fly them to, well, into the United States and back, and then India and back, and he's going to prove to the world that this can be done. Uh, and uh, the two ships, it was interesting the way they did it. Uh, Christopher Thompson was a socialist, actually. He came in to power Secretary of State for Air under the first labor government in British history, under Ramsay MacDonald. And uh, they came up with the idea that they would do one government ship that would be entire government, like entirely governmental, loaded with technologies, cost plus basis, anything you need. And then the other airship would basically just get a straight contract and would not have the technology so much in it. That was called the R-100, the sister ship of R-101. Um, and this kind of... This process went forward. Um, Britain did several stupid things here. One of the things, by doing two ships instead of one, they, they cut their, human, they, they split their expertise, which was very thin anyway. The Germans had most of the expertise. They split their expertise, um, which hurt them very much in the end. Uh, and eventually, ultimately, the R-100 actually did fly to Montreal and back um, uh, successfully, although well, successfully, with many, many near misses along the way, um, just a month before R101 took off for India. So let's talk about the actual uh, voyage itself. One of the key figures uh, on the airship was Major 
Herbert Scott. We talk about who he was and what role he played in the voyage. Okay, Herbert Scott, so one of the things about this story is it's, it's been really largely forgotten and it's been overwritten by various things. I think Lindbergh overwrote a lot of history and so did the Hindenburg. Um, but one of the pieces of the, the British airship experience that's been forgotten about was Herbert Scott. Herbert Scott was one of the great heroes of, of global aviation. In 1919, he took a, what was a, the, the best the British could ever do was to do knockoffs of Zeppelins. They would, they, would, they would find crash Zeppelins and try to piece them together and reverse engineer them and try to figure out how they worked. But they never, they were always years behind. And, and the, so they took a, a type of Zeppelin called a height climber, which was built to get away from British fighter planes firing incendiary bullets. You know, so very, very stripped down, very light. And uh, this thing was called R-34. And Herbert Scott, in the year 1919, took it across the Atlantic and back. This was not only the first... Um, East to West Crossing, which was, is the hard way. Lindbergh went the easy way. East to West goes into the wind. He then, he also turned around and came back. An absolutely astonishing feat. Um, first double crossing of the Atlantic uh, in a thing that had no business ever making it. And the numbers of near misses were so, I mean, I tell the story. It's just a crazy story of adventure and with this, this Zeppelin knockoff that wasn't ever built to do anything like this. Scott became this great hero. I mean, he was, uh, and uh, again, this was eight years before Lindbergh. So we're, this is a time when planes, airplanes and airships are vying for supremacy in the sky. Uh, and uh, anyway, so Scott, then what, ha what happens to Scott is that Scott always, he was part of the Royal Naval Air Service and they were a hard drinking bunch. And Scott was at the hard-drinking end of the hard-drinking bunch, and he, um, as the 20s rolled forward and this Imperial airship scheme got going and they trying to build these airships, they just couldn't quite get them built. So years went by and Scott drank more and more and more until he finally was really pretty much useless afternoon every day. And, but it was, it was Scott who ended up being de facto in charge of this flight to India. He wasn't the official captain, but he had the go, no-go um, call on it. And he had some other calls, too. Anyway, so he's one of the characters that populate this book. Um, he, he's, a, he's fascinating, tragic person. He dies on the airship along with, uh, along with the others, along with Lord Thompson and the cream of the British airship establishment. So let's talk about the voyage itself. As your book describes, there were many reasons why it crashed. So go into every aspect. Uh, you know, I'm always reminded of James Baker's famous five P's, proper preparation prevents poor performance. This book is a story of what happens when you don't have proper preparation. Yeah. So talk about all the factors. So the, uh, the, the process of building this thing is just a kind of a, a, a string of errors, a string of, of, of crises that weren't, that weren't addressed, um, information that was suppressed, mis bad mistakes that were made. So one of the things about um, the, the airship is that on the one hand, it's a strong thing. In other words, if you just look at the, at the metal frame, which is a steel and, and a aluminum alloy frame, it was strong. I um, mean, if you just stripped everything away here and you just looked at the skeleton of that thing, it was pretty strong. And it could probably hit something pretty hard um, 
and and not have anything happen to it. But um, what it's covered with here is very flimsy linen. Now, what you're, that is is cloth. It's what it's doped, meaning they they put some. It, it's a, a chemical compound on it that makes it waterproof, basically. Um, but it's very very flimsy. I mean, you can stick your finger through it. Um, you can you can without a great deal of effort you can do it. So we have not only that that is that is not strong. It's the opposite of strong. It is weak. It is it is particularly vulnerable to wind, and which was a problem that kept recurring and they didn't address. But even so, so the flimsy cotton was protecting the gas bags. Now, this gas bag right here, there were 16 gas bags in this airship. It was 10 stories high. The gas bag itself was made from cattle intestines. Yes, now, you why that you, correctly. Why, cattle intestines. You may ask, would they do that? Because as it turns out, hydrogen is the lightest element. It's also the, the leakiest. It just gets out. You know, I mean, it's very hard to come up with a, with a containing, can, containment envelope that, that, that where it won't leak out of. As it turns out, and when I say animal intestines, think sausage casings, because that's what it was. Right, sausage casings uh, from a particular part of the <coughs> cattle, the cecum of the uh, intestine. But uh, so, okay, now a 10-story gas bag. So what they do, is get, they, they, from Argentine slaughterhouse, there's 500,000 cows died for this thing, okay? <laughs> the, uh, 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 the, 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 the sausage would, that'd be the sausage. The, uh, the, uh, the cecums would be shipped up from Argentina at, you know, on ships and would come out, and they were, it was just gross. It was just, you know, and, they, and these women would, at, at, the, at Cardington where it was built, they would, you know, scrape the mucus off and the whole thing stunk, and then they would cure it and do this, and then eventually they'd put a very light cotton backing onto it. And that's what those, those gas bags were made out of. So not only do you have this very flimsy cover, but you have it protecting... Gas bags that were so, I mean, you could drop a wrench through one of these things. I mean, they were incredibly fragile. So, so much of this was unbelievably fragile. And, and what happens to our, our, and over and over again, as they're building it, they, they run into problems. There's gas leaks and, and the, the gas bags are billowing and, and hitting the girders and which are creating holes and hydrogen is leaking out and these things happen over and over again, and a lot of that information is suppressed. And so when she leaves on her final voyage, she's got real problems with uh, the, the, outer co the outer cover, as they called it, as well as the gas bags. And what, what eventually brings her down, or the, or the initial cause of the crash, was really the uh, fabric here, they, they, Herbert Scott launched into a 50-mile-an-hour wind and a storm, which he shouldn't have done. But that tore away a lot of the, the uh, linen here, which exposed the, the forward gas bags, which then ruptured, which, which then caused the bow. You know, and it was a, a sort of a, a domino effect. But it was a, a classic case, I think, of how, of how not to do it if, if what you're trying to do is uh, is achieve safety, but it's also a classic case of, of not paying attention to your subordinates who are telling you what's wrong. Mm -hmm. In fact, David Norton and Greg Rago, you'll get a kick out of this. 
did it there was such a thing as a certificate of airworthiness at the time yes did it have one oh, well not actually but it was uh, <laughs> it, it 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 was supposed to have it it was it was basically given the, the go ahead at the end it did not get it you know Imagine like, like being in an elevator where they had just forgotten to do the certificate of inspection or whatever. Um, but they, no, they didn't. It, it hadn't been properly inspected. The inspector who, who came to them and said, you can't fly this thing, uh, his information was suppressed right at the end. So the years went by. Well, talk about the crash and, and how many died and, and, and what, the, what the final, paint that picture of, of it going down. All right, so, so again, the background is Imperial Airship Scheme. This is a, a global, it's a very ambitious thing they're going to do. They're going to take this German technology and they're going to perfect it with British technology and they're going to make it better and they're going to make it so safe it can't possibly crash. Does that sound familiar from about 18 years before this, there was this boat called the Titanic that was unsinkable, as I recall. Um, but these things, this was the, uh, is this thing on still? Uh, hello, hello. Here you sit. Oh no, no. I just uh, yeah. I, if I, if I can't get this, the one touch here. Okay. Um, anyway. Uh, you sit. What was I saying? <laughs> We're talking about the, the British technology on the top of the German technology. Oh right. So this was going to be. This was just going to be this kind of brilliant thing, right? And it was going to be so safe. Christopher Thompson, Lord Thompson, said it was. This thing was safe as a house except for the millionth chance. They insisted on treating this experimental prototype as though it were an operational craft, which it never was. Um, and so, so you have this, there's a lot at stake here. This is British technology. This is Britain's, Britain's stepping forward. This is, in some ways, as I was suggesting, trying to regain that kind of piston-pounding 19th century global domination technology-based. And so this is all wrapped up in this thing. And when it goes down, there's a lot of fanfare around it, too. A million people came to see her, the ship, just before she left. In the month before she left, in Cardington, she was built north of, uh, north of London, about an hour north of London. A million people came to see this thing. It was the Prince of Wales came to see it. It was, an, it was a thing. I'm just trying to set up what's about to happen here because it was... Uh, and so when it goes down... It is just this tremendous shock to the, the British people. Um, and the national mourning was shock followed by mourning. The national mourning was seen only with the, the Titanic. And I've heard people say it was uh, you know, on the level of you know, Lady Di later on, but a big national period of mourning. There were... Overflow services at St. Paul's and Westminster. There was a million people in the streets through Whitehall as the funeral cortege went by. Um, this was one of the first, uh, you could argue, one of, the, one of the first mass media events in, in global history because newspapers, radio had just sort of come on. So we had radio all over Europe. This was just everywhere. It was just this. And it was, it was uh, I think it was a, and you say, well, okay, and 48 people died, six survivors, which fortunately gives a historian like me the, the opportunity to recreate the crash, which is a really interesting thing. But you say, okay, 48 people died, which is more than the Hindenburg, but not as many as the 750,000 that the British Empire lost in World War I. And you say, you think, well, what, 48 people? But there was something about it. And 
I'm not sure what it is. It may be the size, because when you see this thing, there's a, there's a photograph that I have in my book here in the, in the end paper. You, you can see, that's, that's our 101 over London. It's just, it was something to see. No one had ever seen it. There was something about the colossal size of the ambition, the colossal size of the ship itself. The fact that nationalism and nationalism was always wrapped up in all this. The reasons the Germans built these things was nationalism, and the reason the English did it was national pride and national ambition. Um, there was just something about it that tugged at everybody's heartstrings. So it became it became a very a very big deal in in uh, October of 1930. I'm sorry. Here, in fact, as you were saying that, this was off. Well, I think it's, I know how to turn it on. It says, it says low battery, so I'm not holding my breath. Oh, it does? And now this is off. All right, we're going to just talk this <laughs> way. Um, but as you were talking about that, uh, today is the 54th anniversary of uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walking on the moon. And I think of that media event and all the buildup that went to it, and it sounded like the same kind of buildup that went to it this was. taking off. And what if Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin had crashed and died on the moon? I mean, that's basically what this was like. I, it's, I, you know, actually, Talmadge, I hadn't thought of that before, but that's exactly, that's a, that's a perfect parallel. The expectations were so high. The expectations were, um, you know, had been built up for many years, as they certainly had with Apollo. And, yeah, it was just this great, and, and and I suppose somewhere back there too was that, you know, Britain had failed. There was a it was it was a failure. Um, they were there was a time here. This is a time in history where you know the British um, are, uh, as I said, they're they're losing their edge. They're losing their imperial edge. You have the Americans kind of just racing ahead here. We're just racing by them. We're racing by the. The British in, in every almost every single way in terms of business and technology. And here is an example of, you know, a, a great ambitious project that that fails. And uh, and I suppose there's a certain amount of national shame attached to that. And and when they did the they hired a commission right to figure out what happened and they actually did a pretty thorough investigation, but then published a paper that said, you know, in fact no one's to blame. And Let's let's move on. So they didn't want. There was tremendous sensitivity to to offending the dead. I think at that point. So, but uh, anyway. Well, I think one of the points you're making here. Years ago, Malcolm Gladwell had the book The Tipping Point, and didn't this crash ultimately wasn't it a tipping point in terms of the future of the British Empire, the rise of, of the other nations with superior technology. It's very near the tipping point, if not right at the tipping point. Yeah, it is. That's that's a, another good observation. It, it is it is right. I mean, who knows when that kind of wave finally crested and and then rolled back? But it was it was it was in these years. Um, and uh, and of course, it would take some time. I mean, you know, the the, the great rebellion, let's say in India, was was you know was sixteen seventeen years into the future at this point, but it was coming. Um, as were the loss of the British possessions in Africa and, and elsewhere. Well, your book ends with the fact that even though there was this investigation made shortly after the crash that was seemingly thorough, it wasn't until decades later, thanks to 
uh, huge investment, uh, uh, advancements in technology that they finally figured out exactly what the cause was. So talk about the effort really just in the last few years yeah. that finally solved the mystery. So one of the fun things about this book was that there, nobody knew what happened, right? So years, people had theories, but they never, they, they, they never added up. And uh, so years go by, like 90 years goes by. And uh, finally, this little, this little uh, researcher guy who's a, who's a kind of a career, he works in like high energy physics and stuff. And he, he, uh, he's retired. He's a teacher at a British university and named Brian Lawton. And he comes up with this. He actually solves the problem, and he and he publishes it in a obscure engineering journal in the United Kingdom, and which exactly eight people read, as far as I can tell. And it was weird because you think because it didn't, it just didn't get the attention. It's like, wait a second, we just solved the ninety-year-old. He just solved the ninety-year-old mystery. He really did. And so one of the fun things about this book was that for me was to be able to bring Brian in as a character in the book. I mean, I, I get to write about, I get to solve, well, Brian solved it, but I get to report really for the first time to the, 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 the global public of what happened and to the thing. And without going into, I don't want to go into too much detail here, but he, he basically figured out that when R101 crashed, so what you have here, you have a... Um, a gondola here, and you have the controls, and the controls, in other words, the, the, this, uh, this, this is the, the rudder, and those are the flaps. You can sort of see them, right? And, and so but the, between the control car, 350, 400 feet back, you have cables running, right, that operate the flaps that make it go up and down, and the rudder, right, and the flaps. And what he, he, he just figured out that, 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 Oh, I can't, I, again, I don't, I don't want to bore you with too many details, but um, it, has to, it had to do with a, he, this was a thought experiment on his part at, at first with, with um, the fact that the, the, uh, what put her down was a failure of the cable itself. In other words, so the, the, the sequence of the crash was failure of the cover, which they should have known about. Cover fails. We're, over, we're 90 miles north of Paris now in a, in a, rather severe rainstorm and a 50 mile an hour headwind. This fails, starts to fray and go back, exposing the gas bags, which then causes catastrophic loss of lift because you know, the, the things, without the gas, the thing goes down, right? So you have catastrophic loss of lift. The thing goes into a dive, which I narrate. And then the, the real question was, why couldn't she pull herself out of the dive? And the reason was, is trying to, trying to stop the dive snap the elevator cable but it, it the cable it, snapped but it but it's a great it, it it's 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 more interesting than i've made it sound here it's it, it isn't just oh my cable snapped and, and the fact that it took 90 years to 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 solve it um but but it goes back to the idea that the, that they the cable may or may not have been somebody's responsibility directly but this whole operation the, the fragility of the gas bags the fragility of the outer cover were problems that were inherent in airships going back to 1900. It was always a bad idea. So as we look back on the significance of this amazing story uh, and the nature of man and, and wanting to be bold and not always paying attention to safety first, this to me is the ultimate lesson. It's, it's 
a lesson in many ways. One, one lesson is, uh, you know, never let nationalism trump technology because it, a lot of this, a lot, a lot of what drove this was sort of national pride. I mean, the Germans, uh, this, was, this was linked to their national destiny as they saw it, to military victory, to technological superiority. Britain was, Britain were, were, were very bad wannabes all the way along. And this, and they never could quite match the Germans. And if you see the, the 20s and culminating in R101 was an attempt to match and, and exceed the Germans. And there was a lot of national pride wrapped up in it. Um, and the national pride, because it was the empire, was, it was pride of empire also, pride of this, this quarter of the nation's globe that they controlled. <laughs> Do we have any questions? Yes, Bill. It's not out yet. Uh, I've sent it to my 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 airship people there, uh, who uh, who who all uh, there's one of them is a big fan of hydrogen and objects to my characterization of hydrogen as being dangerous. But I, I'm not sure he's on the right page. But but uh, most of them. Uh, I really, one of the things that helped me do this book was, you know, I got in touch with the, the airship community. It's just very small. It's very intense. They've got their own publication, you know, dirigible. And they're very, they're very intense and they know everything. And at some point, I started doing this book during COVID. So I'm a guy. So if, if you're writing about something beyond human memory, which this is, and no one's alive who remembers this, you've got to rely on, you know, collections and libraries and museums and letters and documents and stuff like that. And it's the only way. So as of uh, March or April of, 19, of 2020, the entire world was closed to me. Every single, from my local library to University of Texas to the National Archives in London to the RAF, I mean, everything was closed. And I was like, oh, <laughs> what am I supposed to do now? So I, I got... I, Solved it, and I had I made I did workarounds. I solved it in various ways. I got digitally very aggressive. I ordered every book in the planet from Amazon. Uh, I have a giant stack. I normally use libraries, but um, but one of the things I did. So I was t- complaining to my friend Peter Davison, who's leading airship guy in England. I said, you know, Peter, this is really tough on me. I'm I, I can't. I got to get to these archives. Now Peter has spent years in the National Archives, so he said, well, Sam, he said, you know. Sorry about this, but you'll get a little something to keep you busy. So he sent me these files, these zip files. So I opened the zip files. Now, it, when you're a researcher like me and you come upon a document in, a, in an archive, what we do these days, because it's easier, is you just take a cell phone and you go click. Because it's, instead of copying it out by hand or taking it to a copier, you know, a, a copying machine. And so what, I, what Peter sent me, was when I unzipped these files with 7,000 clicks. <laughs> and a lot of it wasn't all that well organized. You know, it was like, okay, well, click, what's that? It, from years in the National Archives. And so my workaround was I spent two months plus, two months, I think, I reduced his 7,000 or 8,000 maybe pages down to my own 750-page sub-archive, which is extremely well organized and indexed. And which contained some of the absolute crown jewels of this research. I mean, some of the stuff that you, you know, hope you would find. There it was just sitting in there. Anyway, that was a workaround. There were a number of them like that. But uh, um, 
but yeah, so <laughs> it's a long-winded answer. Yes. So there's a wonderful uh, historian, a uh, British historian named James Morris. Um, if you don't know him, he, he actually became Jan Morris later, a, a trans historian. Uh, he actually once wrote for Texas Monthly, too, weirdly enough. But, but James Morris, uh, I think, was doing most of his writing in the 60s, I want to say 70s. And that was his, his sort of hey to 80s, probably. And he wrote this thing. Uh, it's, a, it's a trilogy of, of the British Empire. It's called Pax Britannica. And it's just flat brilliant. I mean, if, if, you, if you, any of you who like British Empire history, this is as good as it gets. It knocks me down how good this stuff is. The third volume was called Farewell the Trumpets. And it was about the, the end, right? It's all about the British Empire and it peaks. And then you, then you get the third one, which is Farewell the Trumpets. Indeed, it's Farewell the Trumpets. It's the end of the empire. And you proceed through Churchill and on toward the end of the empire. And in the middle of that book was a, two and a half page section on R101. And the, his point was that this was sort of, its crash was all bound up in this kind of British failure in the 20th century, how the end of, its crash was emblematic of the end of empire. And I read this and I thought, what a great story that is. Wow, what a great story. I never heard that story before. And everybody's heard of the Hindenburg. This happened seven years before. No, nobody knew about this. I thought, what a great story. So I, I did what all, highly, highly trained historians do as I Googled it to see, to see what, what had been done. <laughs> Expecting there to be, I don't know, like 15 books or something. And really nothing since 1980 that had any merit at all. I mean, these were flimsy little, I mean, it was, it was, it was a wide open field for me. So I thought, oh, that's great. And then is it, it was one of those ideas that I had it. And then I kind of had to put it away because I was writing a biography of Stonewall Jackson and then I was writing a book about American football and then a book about Civil another War. book about the Civil War. And, I, you know, it just kind of, but it, it just kept percolating back there. And I kept saying, you know, nobody has done this yet. And I think one of the reasons is, is because unfortunately for the world, nobody reads James Morris anymore. But I highly, seriously, if, if, you, if you all like history, uh, check out that. And, and certainly the, the third one, Farewell the Trumpets. It's just brilliant historical writing. Yes, Kyle. So the, uh, the answer to your question, shockingly, no, it had never really had never been anywhere. It had only kind of done these little joy rides out into the North Sea, over the channel, over. It had never done, I'm trying to think of it, it even, hadn't even done a 24-hour trial with, with its, its final configuration. Um, but no, it had never been anywhere. You, you think, well, it had at least been to Germany and back or into something like Spain and back, but no, it hadn't, um, which was... Again, it was being treated, even though it was an experimental prototype, it was being treated as an operational vehicle aircraft. Um, on board, you had the cabinet minister, Lord Thompson. You had the Britain's director of civil aviation. They were the kind of the two, they were the two, I guess, ranking people. Um, you had some kind of mid-level people from Australia and India on board. But no, no one like the uh, Prince of Wales or anything like that was on board. And no one like, if you look at the, uh, you know, the, the Titanic, you know, 
Alfred Gwynne Vanderbilt and so forth, who, these people who were on the Titanic. No one liked that. But it took down with it the cream of the British airship establishment and killed dead the British airship program. That, I mean, that was it. There, it, it, was, it was all scrap in a few. David. About what? The survivors. Oh, the survivors. Yes, so, so there, there were six of these guys. And, and uh, one of them, and this goes back to my, my well, it wasn't a joke. It was a reality of the, of the smoking room. So they had put this smoking room in as a great luxury because when Herbert Scott and the boys had sailed this thing across the Atlantic and back, they realized how, what an incredible hardship it was not to be able to smoke. This was an era where everybody smoked. And you couldn't, it wasn't like you could maybe light up a, like once. You just couldn't do this on a hydrogen-filled airship. So Lord Thompson was going to solve that by putting a, uh, a room, like, I don't know, it would be the size of a big kitchen or something, in the middle of uh, the airship, which was asbestos-lined on all sides. And uh, <laughs> it had lighters there with the, that were chained to the, so you couldn't take them anywhere. Um, but... Uh, uh, so one of the guys who survived was in the smoking room, having himself a little drink. He had a little siphon and a little, some bourbon or something, and he, and he was smoking. But he was in, the reason he survived was he was in the smoking room, the asbestos line smoking room, as the, we've all seen the Hindenburg, that what hydrogen, sweeps, hydrogen fire sweeps incredibly fast, destroying everything in front of it, very high heat, incinerated everybody like that. In fact, there, there's pictures in the book you can see. It's called, um, oh, what is it called? Um, anyway, it's, it's uh, I've forgotten the name of it temporarily, but it's where you, um, where you are, you die so quickly that you die in the pose that you, you, you retain the pose. So you see people like this, like this, you know, with, as the fire comes. Anyway, Harry Leach beat that by being inside this thing. It crashes, hits the ground. The, the, the huge fire sweeps the ship. There's screams everywhere. He manages to punch his way out and out of the airship somehow. There, were, there, were, there was another couple of guys who were in one of these little, in fact, it was this car, it was that car right there. And they were the engineers who were in this car. They ran that engine, that 650 horse diesel there. And the thing crashes and they watch the fire sweep toward them and they're, and they realize it's all over. They can't get out. They can't. They're trapped in this thing. They, they, there's nowhere to go. They're going to burn to death. And they kind of look at each other and go, well, it's been nice. And at that moment, literally, one of the, the, the these things contain a lot of ballast bags that are, are used for emergency. So if your ship is falling quickly and you, gotta, you have to save yourself, you pull these things in these enormous ballast bags, like five times the size of that chandelier, 10 times full of water, you can release it really quickly. You can release ballast to, to stop the fall. Right above them, right, right there, was one of these enormous, and somehow the, the hydrogen fire ruptured the bag. And just at the moment when these guys were about to be crisped, this huge cascade waterfall comes over them. Anyway, I, I won't go through each, one, each story, but they were, it, it, they, were, they were all kind of miracles. And... Uh, and because this, this thing crashed at 2 a.m. In, in, a, in a dark uh, woods 90 miles north of, uh, of Paris, it, you know, nobody saw it. I mean, one, a poacher saw it. Some guy was out poaching rabbits or something. He was the only one who saw it. So, so in order to recreate it, it, it was 
I mean, I was greatly uh, helped as a historian having their diaries, their accounts, these guys, of, of, of the sequence of what it felt like to be inside this thing um, when it went up. Well, oh, one last question. Oh, so you're saying in, in anticipating World War II. Um, it was interesting because the Germans were, so the Treaty of Versailles expressly forbid the Germans from building these things. They weren't allowed to anymore. And one of the reasons that the British came on the scene in the 20s, you know, was not just because they were technologically good, they weren't that good, but because the Germans had been forbidden from building them. And so you have this whole period of time dictated by the Treaty of Versailles after World War I that involved, you know, all the reparations and everything, but also that Germany had to just completely disarm. Um, and so, I mean, I can't, I'm not sure I, I'm not really answering your question, but the, so there's, this is the kind of the end of the period of disarmament where, where you know, where there, there isn't, weirdly enough, there is one German Zeppelin flying around, but it's, it's a passenger, it's a demonstrator kind of ship. But yeah, I'm not sure, I'm not sure that, that doesn't answer your question, I think. Well, we uh, appreciate everybody coming this morning. Uh, this is a marvelous story told by one of the world's great storytellers, so I hope you Enjoy the book, and Sam, thanks for coming to Dallas. Honor and privilege. S.C. Gwynn's terrific new book about the airship crash that proved to be a tipping point for the British Empire is a timely study of how a lack of proper preparation and allowing ego to prevail over prudence can bring on disastrous results. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and the Washington Independent Review of Books. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.